That's right. We are in Revelation chapter 3, not Revelations. Revelation chapter 3. It's where we are. That is where we left off last week. If you remember, this is Christ's address to the church in Sardis, a church that was very much in trouble, a church that was in danger of having its lampstand removed. And if you remember, it has leveled against it a very serious accusation from the Lord Jesus Christ. This church and the one in Laodicea are the only ones that have no positive thing mentioned in the opening sentence, actually. There's nothing to commend them for on the outset, which is different than the other five uh, addresses to the churches. And so as it is with these seven addresses or letters, they are timely, and they speak to the, to the specific issues that exist in congregations today and in congregations that have existed in the previous 1,950 or so years and congregations that will exist until the time of the Lord Jesus' second coming. So let's read our passage, and then we'll pray, asking God's blessing. So the reading of God's word, beginning at verse 1 in Revelation 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know the hour I will come against you. Yet you have a still a few names of Sardis, people who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That ends God's, the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Our Father, you are holy and good. And we ask that you would help us to take to heart what we have read right now. Let us listen with a profitable sense, Lord. We don't want to waste this time that we have here in your word. And we ask, Lord God, that what is true from your word will be spoken tonight. Lord, help me to rightly handle your word and to do so with fear and trembling of not doing it, Lord. I certainly don't want to communicate anything that isn't true, anything that isn't from you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified and exalted tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week we didn't move past that very first half of verse 1, and that's because it's very significant that of it's very significant what Jesus said there in that that portion in light of the issues that this church Sardis is having to deal with this congregation that's basically east of Ephesus the Lord Jesus for this church for any church uh, for any person really is the only one that has with him these precious remedies that rebellious sinners need that rebellious sinners need he's the only one with those remedies we can't go to some other source any other source that claims to be able to help apart from Christ is in fact stealing glory from God and is heaping condemnation upon themselves and those that they claim to be helping. Christ Jesus is the precious remedy for sinners. He has with him what we need. And so we learn in the first part of verse 1 that he has with him under his authority those who preach his word. His word is essential for the correctives that need to be applied here. Even this whole letter itself, the whole apocalypse of Jesus Christ, it is his word and it is his corrective word and his encouraging word, which is meant to bring him glory. But it's not just his word that he has with him, given by the, quote, seven stars, that allegory 
for our metaphor for pastors and elders of the churches, uh, faithful ones, at least that is. But he also has the seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit, in other words, the omniscient spirit, the fullness of him and all of his power. And the spirit works in step in union with Jesus and the Father. Joel Beakey says this, says, who but the spirit could bring Sardis to remember the word of truth that she had lost? Only the Holy Spirit can enlighten the true believer. Only the Holy Spirit can help him remember the days of initial conviction and tenderness when he walked in the fear of God. The Holy Spirit can bring him to true repentance and cause him once more to take firm hold on what he has received and heard. Therefore, the great need of the church at Sardis, that the Holy Spirit might be poured out with fresh vigor in her midst. And I would say that would be true of any church that is struggling in any way. It is the Holy Spirit with the word that is the means that comes from Christ. Both of these coming uh, from Christ and with Christ are the means for our help. And so it is Christ who has a spirit to give and ascend. That's his proclamation to the church here. And we covered that last week. Now tonight we are going to consider what the issues before his church are and then what corrective measures must be applied. And then he ends this section with some commendations for those who repent and for those who don't yoke themselves with this church so much that they go down to the grave with it if they don't repent. And we're actually we're going to do that last part next week because I was working all this out and it looked like it was just going to be way too long for tonight. So we'll save those last two verses for next week. So first he gives us the problem, then he offers corrections, and then he commends those who take it and those who don't need it. So three sections total. We'll do the first two tonight and then the last one next week. So first section. The problem here at Sardis seems to be twofold. There are some that are described as dead, as being dead, and then there are some that are described as about to die. Some are clearly and obviously dead to the Lord. The Lord knows all things, and he's the one who sees the innermost being. And there are some who are not yet dead, but from an experiential and human standpoint, they are about to die. That is, unless the Lord perseveres them through the very warnings of this passage. Perseveres them means that he takes them out of this pattern of rebellion and sinfulness and keeps them with him, prevents them from being in in an apostate, prevents them from denying the faith and and departing from the faith that they're professing. And so this is a little complex. It's a little messy. So let's just take it nice and slow and see about these things individually. And also just know too, that this is a fitting description for many evangelical churches today. The things that are said about Sardis, I, I would argue, I would think we can make a case quite easily that they are a fitting description for many churches today. So the second half of verse one, we read there, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. There, there is a sense in which this is applicable to the whole church, of course. He knows the works of the whole church. He knows their deeds, in other words. He knows the, the types of things that they are doing in his name. And of course, it's not that any person is saved by the works, but saved people think and they act in a way that is in accord with the new life that has been given to them. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, and they have the reputation of being alive, this church here in Sardis. And that's what all Christians actually are, right? Christians are people who have passed from death to life. We die in and with Christ, and we live in and with him. Even if we were to die right now and go to glory, Properly speaking, we would still be alive because of the change that God does to us in redeeming us. 
when you might remember this, when Jesus was dealing with the Sadducees in Mark 12, they're, they're that sect of teachers within the old covenant that denied the resurrection. He chides them, he rebukes them for not believing in the resurrection. And he brings up how God spoke to Moses. And when God spoke to Moses, he said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. The implication being that he is the God of the living. Even though Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they no longer walked on the earth at that time when Moses was alive. That was many, many years before him. And nevertheless, Jesus' point was that they are still alive. So Christians are alive. They have true life because Christ is life. He is the life. Not just a life, but he is the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And Christians are united to him. So Christians are, properly speaking, they are alive as, as what they're supposed to be. And they are by faith in Christ. And that's how what he says about Sardis is they have a reputation for being alive. But this is interesting. He says he knows their works. And these works or deeds seem to have fooled them or fooled others around them. Probably both. Fooled them themselves and fooled others around them too. And we say that because they merely have a reputation for being alive. But of course, you know, the Lord Jesus sees right through that. He, see through, he sees through these works and he knows that actually they are dead. But they appear to the world as Christians. They appear to be alive. Their reputation is that of living. Their name is that of living. More on that in a moment because it seems to be important. So to themselves and to the world, they may seem to be genuine Christians, like a genuine Christian church. Uh, they meet on the Lord's Day twice, I'm sure, even. They probably had a lot of wealth. This was a church that probably the, the people who attended gave a lot, financially supported it. Uh, they gave to the work of ministry, and they were probably really busy with ministry as well, doing things in the community. The pastor was probably very charismatic and memorable in the way that he would deliver his sermons. And so they end up having this reputation for being alive. You know what this is like, I think. And let me just give you a couple of names within the SBC since First Family Church is in a is in cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention. And so give you some popular Southern Baptist churches as examples here to make this point. So consider Elevation Church, which is in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is where Steve Furtick is the pastor, or Saddleback Church, which is in Anaheim, where Rick Warren is the pastor. And so I don't know if you have you guys heard of those churches before? Some of you guys? Yeah. Okay. So if you ask someone who lived in Charlotte or Anaheim about a prominent church to attend, they there's a good chance that they would suggest either of these congregations, unless they were very discerning. Uh, these congregations, they have a reputation for being Christian. Uh, they're both big. Thousands of people go. Multiple services. There's multiple campuses even. Even in other cities. Uh, they boast of many ministries in the communities. Both pastors are charismatic, meaning they're they know how to captivate an audience. They speak well. Uh, they have books and contemporary music groups come from these congregations. Yet, they both have serious doctrinal issues. Uh, they would both subscribe to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, the same statement of faith that we have. Yet, the doctrine that comes from the pulpit and the theology that is in the life and the practice of the church is contrary to what the Bible teaches in many regards. They appear to be alive but actually, with a closer look, we aren't so sure. And of course, only the Lord knows for certain. But we know for sure what's going on in Sardis. I mean, the Lord has told us. 
They have a reputation for being alive, but they are dead. For churches like this, and for this church in Sardis, the warning at the end of the Sermon on the Mount must be considered, I would think. Not only do people on the outside think these kinds of congregations are actually Christian, but those on the inside do as well. And it would be a very terrible thing, humanly speaking, for those people to die and then go before the Lord and claim that they did all these good works. Lord, I I was a member at Elevation Church. I was a member at Saddleback. I was baptized there. I took the Lord's Supper. We did good things in the community. We, We did this and we did that. And then for Jesus to say to them, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. But that is the exact scenario that's being described here in Sardis. They have a reputation for being alive, but they're actually dead. They have the name of being Christian, but they actually are not Christian. The word reputation here, the there in verse 1, for in English it says reputation, at least in the ESV. In the Greek, it's the word onoma. And it's translated elsewhere, even in the section of verses that we have tonight as name. I think you have the NASB. It says name in the NASB, I believe. It says, I know your name. And you got, or it says in, in the NASB, it says, I know your works. You have the name of being alive, but you are dead. Now, we see this word and the concept I'm about to explain used 39 times in Revelation alone. And so the translators for the ESV, wanting to help us understand what's going on here, chose to translate this word as reputation. And that's, that's fine. It's within the scope of the meaning of the word. But name, I think, actually would have been a better choice. Because what's going on here is this. Do they truly bear the name of Christ? Does Sardis truly bear the name of Christ? Does a church like Saddleback or Elevation truly bear the name of Christ. That's what their reputation consists of. But is it is that really what is actually true? And and really when we think about it this way, with thinking about them having the name, bearing the name of Christ, what they do when they're not actually doing that is they're violating the third commandment. The third commandment, we know this one, right? Uh, you shall not take the name of your, the Lord your God in vain. Often we understand this only in the sense of not using God's name flippantly and not using Jesus' name flippantly and not using like the name of Jesus as a verb or saying, oh my God. And it's good and it's right to do those things. But at a more to not do those things, you don't want to, you know, just use the name of God irreverently or the name of, and the name of, or the name of Jesus irreverently. And Jesus, of course, is God. But at a more fundamental level, to violate the third commandment means that you bear the name of God in vain. You take his name, but then you live and you think and you believe in such a way that is contrary to being associated with that name. If you think of it like this, Israel was to bear the name of God before the Canaanites. You remember when we went through Judges? I think that was before this, right? They were supposed to be representatives for Yahweh there in the land, but they ended up being guilty of syncretism and blending with the Canaanites. And there was the Canaanization of Israel. Well, they were not at that point, they're not bearing the name of Yahweh. Uh, not, not well. They were taking his name in vain. Christians today are to bear the name of Christ, who is God before the whole world. That's what, you know, the third commandment really is getting at. And so we should think back to two seventeen. Hey guys, do do these 
if your Bible is slow, but you can look at 2.17. Do these professing believers have a white stone with a new name, with a new anoma on it? Do they truly bear the name of Christ? And Christ is saying, well, no, they don't. He knows their works. They're not complete. And they're, in fact, dead. He says they're not complete in verse 2. So let's consider what verse 2 says. Verse 2 reads, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So he's still describing the problem here, but this is where it gets more complex, for me at least, because we see that they either aren't totally dead, or at least a portion of them are not truly spiritually dead. Because there's something that can be done, which is a grace from the Lord, that would be a means of them not being dead. The things that he says to wake up and to strengthen themselves. It would be God's gracious acting through them to persevere them, through the instruction that he provides. So they so they can't boast then. It's not like they are the ones who are responsible for waking themselves up and taking strength. It's just done through the means that God gives so that, that only their boast would be Christ and they would just end up thanking God for mercy and grace. So Jesus describes them then as being asleep. They need to wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. It's very similar to the admonishment given to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. There it's be watchful. Here it's wake up. But this is actually the same phrase in the Greek. And there's also an admonishment in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, if you remember, because we were just there a couple Sundays ago, uh, to also to be strong. And there's, it says here to strengthen what remains. So it's very, very similar admonishments and encouragements. Uh, and if you remember from the sermon a few weeks ago on Sunday morning, this notion of waking up here, it would be an encouragement to look to Christ, to be concerned with his coming, more on that in a moment, to be concerned with practical holiness, how you live, and to be concerned with your doctrine, your life and your doctrine, both of which need to be centered on and looking to Christ. If you are truly alive, you know, you're, you're looking to Christ, your life and your doctrine is built on who Christ is. The, the fact that he says, strengthen what remains, is a clue that tells us this was, in fact, a living church at some point. There, there are some in the body who haven't compromised yet. We see that down below in the text. But by and large, and we'll get to that probably next week, but by and large, this congregation is in great, great danger, being spiritually dead, and some who are deceived but have an opportunity because of the gospel here to repent and to strengthen what remains. And notice the reason they need to do this. He says, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. In the original Greek, this is a much stronger warning, actually. In the original Greek, this statement is, nothing you do pleases me. Jesus is telling them that in everything that they do, and remember, they're probably doing a lot. They're going to church. They're taking the means of grace. They're being charitable to the lost. They're active in the community. And yet, in everything that they do, they are lacking. Christ Jesus has not found their works fulfilling. He hasn't found them satisfying. And it's his name that they're bearing. So this is a serious rebuke, isn't it? I mean, we might look good before our fellow men. We may have other people in the church deceived. But understand, friends, that God is not deceived. Man looks at outward appearances, but God can see the heart. And so it seems to me that a church, when it is like this, when these kind of warnings come against them, what they have lost... What it is that they are to remember and then strengthen, if they are to persevere and live through this, it is 
the gospel, actually, and its benefits that the gospel supplies. They have subconsciously, not on purpose, in other words, neglected the gospel and neglected to rest in the gospel promises that come with it. And they slipped into this meritorious relationship with the Lord based upon their pride and what they can do. If you remember from last week, the kind of attitude is in step with the people in Sardis because of their pride and the self-reliance based on the location of, of the city and its defense capabilities. But the same kind of sin really is possible for any Christian in any age uh, to think like this. Uh, Beaky says that we are all prone to be Sardians, and he's right. In Hosea 11.7, the Lord says, My people are bent on turning away from me. It's easy for us to neglect the means of grace. I mean, just, you know, look around, look at other churches, maybe even look within our own congregation. Most people view the Lord's Day and the Fourth Commandment as a suggestion. Uh, Most are satisfied with carving out a few hours in the morning on the Lord's Day and calling it done. People are prone to neglect biblical disciplines. We're prone to neglect meditating upon God's Word. How many people seek to memorize God's Word? How many people give themselves to praying consistently and frequently? These are just you know the basic means of grace. But when they're neglected, certainly we shouldn't be surprised to see backsliding, to see compromise with the world. And that's what Sardis is doing. Some of them have soiled their garments, we read in verse 4. They're indulging in sinful activity. And even though the church hasn't noticed, we see that the Lord Jesus does. A lot of them in this congregation are just simply lost. They aren't found in Christ. They don't have union with him. But there are some who do have union with Christ who are saved, and yet they're going along with this church in delusion. And so Jesus warns them here, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Listen to how the second London Baptist of Confession describes how a true believer can sometimes turn away from the Lord, and then how God ultimately perseveres and how he still keeps them united to himself because they are, in fact, true believers. This is the third article in chapter 17 on perseverance. So it says, They, meaning real, true Christians, may fall into grievous sins and continue in them for a time due to the temptation of Satan in the world, the strength of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, in so doing, they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy, his Holy Spirit. Their graces and comforts become impaired. Their hearts are hardened and their conscience is wounded. They hurt and scandalize others and bring temporary judgments on themselves. That whole summary statement there would really describe believers here in Sardis that are about to die from a human perspective, at least. And then it goes on to say in closing, nevertheless, they will renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. But if they aren't true believers, then we wouldn't expect them to have their repentance renewed and to be preserved. Those that are, quote, about to die, as here in Sardis, will die. But that's only humanly speaking, because what it means is that they were never actually spiritually alive in the first place. They are in danger of judgment. They will be in danger of judgment, which Christ Jesus will mention in the next verse. And so we should, by grace, always be remembering the gospel. It is key to our well-being to to remember the gospel, to rehearse the gospel to ourselves daily. It's integral to us 
to rightly bearing the name of Christ. The reality that we as people are sinful, that we sin because we are sinners. We're born into this world as children of wrath, alienated from God and the, and the covenant promises that he gave to his people. But God, in, the, in his rich forbearance and his kindness and his love, Father, Son, and Spirit covenanted a, a plan to redeem people, to bring glory into his name, simply for his good pleasure. Nobody deserves it. And then to enact this plan, Jesus enters into the world, born of a virgin, lives under the law, meaning that he was fully subjected to living as a human being under God's holy and perfect law. He's true God and true man, and he never once sins. He lives perfectly the whole time, never transgressing God's law, never committing any iniquity. And then, nevertheless, he goes to a cross, to a wicked torture instrument to die, even though the Bible says, and it's true and right, the wages of sin is death. Jesus never sinned. Nevertheless, he paid these wages there for everyone who was chosen in him before the foundation of the world, for everyone who would believe, for everyone who hears his voice. And what all that simply means is that do you believe who Jesus is? Well, who he says he is and what he's done. That's what it means to, to hear his voice. And then he doesn't stay dead, of course. He rises on the third day and he's seen by many apostles and then he is ascends to heaven and he's exalted. And, and anyone who confesses their sins and, and repents may have new life in him. And when they do so, it shows that they were, you know, again, chosen him for the foundation of the world. That is the gospel. And then the benefits that come from it, we are reigning with Christ. He is, he is Lord over all. He's our Lord. He's our God. It means the suffering that even we go through isn't worthless or meaningless because God is using it to sanctify us and conform us to Christ. There's every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus are ours in the gospel. So by grace, we can plead with the Lord to save us from being hypocrites, that he would give us a zeal for his glory that would prevent us from neglecting the gospel because doing so ends up making you be like this church in Sardis. Now, let's look at the corrections that he offers here. And it's pretty simple, just three parts to it. This is verse three. He says, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. So turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 15. You could keep a finger in Revelation 3. You might remember this too, because of Sunday morning sermon series. As well, 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter where the Corinthian church, they had a group of people that were impacted by some saying there was no resurrection. And this is why I would argue that they have lost the gospel in part as well. You notice that Revelation 3 doesn't specifically exactly tell us what the issue was for them being dead doesn't exactly tell us, but I've been trying to say what, what it is that they've, they've lost the gospel. They've neglected it and neglected to rest in its benefits. Part of the reason that I say that is because of what 1 Corinthians 15 says, but also simply because it's the work of God that saves us, which is the message of the gospel and not what we do or we don't do. As, again, because what we do flows out of who we are in Christ. So we'll look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1. So we read, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you receive, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So go ahead and look back at Revelation 3. 
he's saying the same thing in verse 3 of Revelation 3 as, as the Apostle Paul did here in 1 Corinthians 15. What we receive through hearing is the gospel. It's the good news. It's Christ himself. That's what they had forgot. They got lost in some pride and were basing their righteousness on their own good deeds. And so they need to remember what they received through hearing unless they believed in vain, as 1 Corinthians 15 notes. Because this gospel that we received by grace through faith, through the faith given to us, we stand in it because it is that which is saving us. That's how we keep it. In Revelation 3, he says, keep, remember and then receive what you heard keep it and repent. Well, how do we keep it? We, we stand in it. We remain in the gospel. We remain fully resting in the hope and the promises of that gospel. We, we don't depart to self-righteousness. We don't look to mingle our right standing before God with the good things that we do, no matter how good we think they are. We're pleasing to God based on who Christ is and what he has done. And then we seek to do things that are pleasing to God for his glory and for love of our fellow man, which glorifies God. But notice how verse 3 continues. If you will not wake up, what he said in verse 2, in other words, if you will not be watchful and look to Christ and him alone, he says, I will come like a thief, and you will not know the hour that it will come against you. That's reminiscent of a few things, isn't it? Remember the command to wake up or to be watchful is found in the context of three categories, and one of them is in light of Jesus' coming, which is what he says that will happen if they don't take the correction that he's offering to them. And he says here that he's going to come like a thief in the night. And when they don't expect it, or just like a thief, actually, not a thief in the night. That's another passage. But simply meaning that when they don't expect it, in an hour they don't know. He says similar things in the gospel accounts, which refer to his coming in Matthew 24, 42 to 44, Luke 12, 35 to 40, it's mentioned. In the epistles, it's mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 2 Peter 3, 10. But here's what we need to understand. He's not speaking about coming in support. That much should be clear. But what he would mean is a speaking about coming in judgment. It's not the second coming that is in view here. It's not his final return here. But Christ Jesus comes in many ways in this time period that we are presently living in. And these comings are comings in judgment. And they are the ones that are comings in judgment are like a type of that final coming in which he will actually come bodily in judgment against all his enemies. Uh, the same thing happened in 70 AD with the Olivet Discourse. There when Jesus said he would come in their lifetime, that's that tricky passage where Jesus is talking and, and he says, you will see that, that these events are going to happen in their lifetime, in their generation. Well, he really did come in judgment with the destruction of the temple, making official the end of the Old Covenant which typified his final return, which will happen when the elect, all of the elect are born again. He didn't come bodily in 70 AD. He's not talking about coming bodily here in judgment against Sardis. He's talking about a coming in judgment. G.K. Beale says it like this. He says, nevertheless, this coming of Revelation 3 is connected to the final one and that both are part of the same inaugurated end time process. So catch this, okay? Understanding this will help you to make sense of those difficult passages, those difficult eschatological passages that people love to de debate over. Eschatological, um, from the word eschatology, means the study of the end times, the study of the last things. But don't think that it only means future events. I mean, there's es eschatology in the garden. There, we think about these things all throughout um, history. And so 
Christ Jesus inaugurated his kingdom at his first coming. That's abundantly clear, right? If you read the gospel accounts, how many times do you say over and over, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I've been, I've been called to preach the good news of the kingdom. Um, the kingdom of, of God is called in, a, I believe, Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel, or no, in Luke's. And then he says, um, at the end of Matthew's gospel, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he's, he's king, he's reigning, and then it will all be consummated. That's, that's, that's the kingdom's inauguration. It will all be consummated, finished, or completed when he comes again. And so the Bible speaks about Jesus coming in ways that aren't that final end of the age coming. It's often in reference to his coming in judgments, not bodily, but in sovereign spiritual judgment through secondary causes through people, nations, through natural disasters. And these comings, which would happen, are connected to that final one and ultimately are part of the same process. So again, if you think of the Olivet Discourse, when he came, how did he come? It wasn't in his body, but he came with the Roman army that came and destroyed Jerusalem. That was Christ coming with judgment. And he's saying the same type of thing is going to happen to the church Sardis, who has a reputation for being alive, but they are in fact dead. Christ will come in judgment. Christ Jesus is building his kingdom now. He's reigning now, which would entail coming in judgment now. And honestly, this is our joy even because he's protecting his sheep through it. You'll see this more clearly even in verse 5, which we'll get to next week. And then even more clearly as we continue through this book and we see texts that speak of the church not being harmed or protected. And like these interesting statements where we see like, the whole the spirit being told to mark believers on their forehead well that's the lord protecting his people when judgment is happening all around them in the current age that we're living in we basically need to take the book of revelation slowly verse by verse but at the same time thinking of the whole rest of it to really try to make sense of it we can't lose the forest for the trees or the trees for the forest both are important and it's difficult but this is apocalyptic literature and it's how we must do it it's how we must read it Instead of reading it top to bottom, maybe you can think of an analogy like you read it side to side or, or back and forth, if that makes sense. And so, brothers and sisters, there is a real warning for us here in these passages that we have been studying tonight. Judgment is promised, and it will come to those who are hypocritically playing church. It will come to those who are Christian in name only, to those who bear the name of Christ but are in fact dead. But there is good news as well, friends. The gospel is what makes us alive. The good news is that our sins are forgiven and that we are the recipients of every blessing in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. Is And that is what we are to rest in. And even in contexts like the situation in Sardis, Christ has his sheep and he will keep them. And that will be what we consider next week, actually, with the closing verses of this passage. So for now, let's pray and um, see if you have any questions. Our Father, we thank you for showing us these things, uh, for helping us to know, Lord, that you are a holy God and that to declare that we belong to you, uh, that we bear your name, and then to live contrary to that is a gross sin. And we ask that you would help us to never be hypocritical like that, Lord. We pray that you would help us to be holy. We pray that if there is someone here or anyone here who doesn't truly know you, who isn't actually united to you, who maybe is only bearing your name in name only, we ask that tonight would even be the night of salvation and that you would be glorified in redeeming your elect 
Lord, we know that none of us deserve your salvation, but we're so thankful that you are merciful and gracious and you give us all that we need in Christ. It's amazing to think that we have every blessing in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. You are good and every good gift and every perfect gift comes from you, we know, and we profess it. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, any questions? Did I say the thing you thought I was going to say? No, you didn't. Okay. I thought you would say, I thought that you thought I would say fellowship. That's why I said elevation and saddle back instead. Integral? Words are hard. <laughs> That's what it is. The emphasis on the wrong syllable. Yeah. That's enough, guys. Yeah, he's not bodily with them. It's like um. It's, but like the Holy Spirit's not with them, but but they're directed by him as judgment on. Yeah. So the finer details, I think, would be mysterious to us. We might think of like Isaiah. 10 or Isaiah 9, where he talks about bringing Assyria against Israel. And he says that Assyria doesn't want to glorify God. They want to build their kingdom. But God is going to use them as like an axe to chop down Israel. Assyria, though, doesn't know that God's holding them in his hand. And they're actually going to be judged later on because their intents are not to glorify the Lord. Their intents are to, you know, to glorify the Lord or to hurt the Lord's people even. So it is similar to that. When Rome came, they're the axe in the Lord's hand. Um, so that coming, which I know is a tough passage. Like a lot of people would look at the Olivet Discourse and say, oh, it's all future. That hasn't happened yet. But then you have that really weird thing to deal with where Jesus says that this is going to happen in your lifetimes and his coming. And so it's a coming in judgment. And we see that same type of thing happen here. It'll make even more sense actually next week because there's a parallel to what's happening here with Sardis that's contained in Revelation 16. That hopefully if we're able to see that, it'll it'll be more eye-opening. Anything else? Okay.